0: Morning, Christ First. My name is Tom and I'm a member here at the church. Uh, we find ourselves, and particularly for those of you who are visitors, in the middle of a series working through the book of Exodus. Today we're looking at one of the, one of the most well known parts of that story, possibly the greatest and most dramatic part, the crossing of the Red Sea. Now I'm not trying to minimise many of the other crucial moments we've Already come across in the story so far, like the you know, God appearing at the burning bush, uh, the the ten plagues of Egypt, uh, the Passover. And of course, we're still yet to see the giving of the law, the giving of the law, the ten commandments at Mount Sinai. But this has to be, I think, one of the most famous stories in Exodus. As I've been preparing, I've been struck by how Although we probably know this story so well, we can miss so much that God is telling us about himself, about the world and about us through it. I believe this 4,000 year old story is deeply practical and applicable to our daily lives today. So my prayer is that you will, as I am praying I will, after meditating on this text of scripture we will be changed and stirred to greater faith and action. So before we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us by the work of your Holy Spirit. It can transform us. It can change us. And I pray, Lord, you'd help me now to speak. You would use the words that I've prepared. And that you would open the ears of all of those listening to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, a little bit of context. uh, Before we read our text, it's it's important to remind ourselves of what's happened so far in the story uh, before we read the passage. So the Israelites have been in slavery for about 400 years in Egypt. Uh, They've been treated brutally and harshly by the Egyptians, particularly in the most recent years. So God raises up Moses, a man to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and into a pilgrimage towards a land of their own that had been promised to them by God to one of their forefathers, Abraham. Moses obeys God and asks Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let Israel go, but he refuses. So God sends a series of ten plagues on the Egyptians to teach them that the God of Israel, the Yahweh, the I am who I am, is Lord of all. Now it is worth saying at this point, just for any visitors that might be listening to this, uh, the fact that uh, we've been looking at the plagues of Egypt uh, and obviously that the current context, the current circumstances of coronavirus are entirely unplanned. Um, We started this series well before the crisis began. And the church is is clear that we're not saying, and we don't believe, that this virus is a plague like the plagues on Egypt. Uh, And so for a a fuller explanation of that position I, I would refer you back to Andy's sermon on the 12th of April. There simply isn't time today to go over that again. So these plagues are of increasing severity and seriousness, and despite this, after each plague, Pharaoh refuses to listen, or obey, and his heart is hardened. And so the tenth, the most terrible plague of all, the death of the firstborn of all people and all animals in Egypt, is so devastating that Pharaoh finally relents and lets the Israelites go. God protects the Israelites from the 10th plague by providing the Passover lamb, the blood of which, when painted on the doorframe, it causes the angel of death to, to literally pass over their homes, which saves them. And so we find ourselves now at the point where the Israelites are wandering through Egypt, out of the city of Ramesses and towards the wilderness, though their route is not as direct as they may have thought it would be, but more on that later. So let's turn then uh, to the Bible, let's read today's scripture. Uh, Today's scripture is Exodus 14, starting at verse 1, so if you have a Bible with you, please turn to it now, but the words are also uh, on the screen. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots of all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel, while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground and i will harden the hearts of the egyptians so that they will they shall go in after them and i will get glory over pharaoh and all his host his chariots and his horsemen and the egyptians shall know that i am the lord when i have gained glory over pharaoh his chariots and his horsemen then the angel of god who was going before the host of israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from behind them uh, from before them sorry and stood behind them coming between the host of egypt and the host of israel uh, my message today is divided under three things that I believe God is wanting to say to us. The first is, whatever the situation, God is working for your good. Secondly, God does the work, not you. And thirdly, there are two ways for God to get the glory. So, uh, whatever the situation, God is working for your good. Uh, this is taken mainly from the first six verses of our passage. What we read is that the Israelites were instructed by God to turn back and camp in front of Pi-hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea. Now, we're not really sure where these places are. Remember, this is 4,000 years ago. Uh, But we are given a clue as to the circumstances in verse 3, where it says, Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. In other words, the Israelites having left their slavery in Egypt, having plundered their slave masters by taking gold and silver with them as they leave, now look like they're full of uncertainty and indecision wandering in the desert. Still inside Egypt, the country, the nation they're fleeing from, trapped between the wilderness and the sea. Now on this slide I have a map which shows the possible routes of the Exodus which are drawn in with the the red arrows. Uh, the Israelites, uh, almost certainly would have left from the city of Ramesses. Now I'm sure that you know, being on that spiritual high, having seen God move so powerfully at the Passover, uh, so powerfully in the plagues he's brought on Egypt, so powerfully in the way that they've been miraculously just sent out of, of Egypt by Pharaoh himself, the expectation would have been that now surely they would march on to take the promised land that had been uh, promised to their uh, forefather, their ancestor Abraham. That's what I think anyway. And that route would have taken them, the one that I've drawn in yellow with those two arrows. You'll see it takes them via the way of the Philistines. Now we did actually read in chapter 13 last week that God told Moses not to go that way because the Israelites weren't ready to face the Philistines and the war that would inevitably result. So instead... God sends them what looks like the wrong direction, down towards the Red Sea, which I've drawn in in green. And so by the time they get to the edge of the Red Sea, and they see the chariots of Egypt approaching them, they're totally stuck. They've been cornered by the most powerful army of the known world at that time. An army made of 600 of Pharaoh's choicest chariots, the most advanced military hardware, of the time. Now I wonder how you would have felt being an Israelite, wandering in the wrong direction in a foreign land which has treated you so badly, what fears you might have, how confused you might be. You might be wondering, you know, have we we heard God correctly? We too can find ourselves in places where we question if God's there, we question why is he allowing this or that to happen? We might have asked for more of God in our lives, we might have asked for a closer walk with him, more obedience, more holiness, and instead we seem to have difficulty or disappointment. So we might say it didn't look good at the shores of the Red Sea, but we have an advantage the Israelites didn't have. We can read on, we can see what happens next, and what we can see is that God is in fact using this event to bring about an incredible rescue of the Israelites and victory over the Egyptians. So the truth, as the Israelites are panicking, and thinking they were better off in Egypt, and, and fearing for their lives, is that God is in control. God has a plan. God cares for and loves the Israelites, and so he's not gonna let them be destroyed or recaptured. Okay. And so it is with us. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever you've been through, You need to know that God is in control. He has a plan, he cares for you, and he loves you. He's perfecting you, he's sanctifying you, that is, he's making you more holy, he's making you more like Jesus. I'm not saying that God is not gonna put you in difficult situations, and and I'm not saying he won't ask you to face challenging circumstances quite the contrary, quite the opposite. I mean, look at the Israelites, look at their suffering as slaves in Egypt, and now the terror as they sit cornered on the shores of the Red Sea. But I think that the New Testament uh, writers, the Apostles, you know, talk much the same to the early Christians. We read that in Acts chapter 14, the the words are on the screen where it reads, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, the NIV uses the word hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. So in the current context of of the coronavirus, we, we can have confidence, can't we, that God is in control and he's using it for his purposes. And in whatever difficult circumstance you find yourself in, you can know that God is sovereign. There are two things to say here, I suppose, firstly. You know, life might be going pretty well for you right now. And I suppose this is a chance to learn the theory, as it were, so that when life gets hard, which it will, You'll be ready to respond with faith when finances or career or friendships or reputation or family or your health fail, you'll be equipped to stand the trial. Secondly, you might be going to see something really tough, and in a way, you know, me saying God's in control and God has a plan might seem a bit like, well, doesn't really help me right now, it doesn't help me in my situation, And you might reasonably say, well, it's easy for you to say that, but you're not going through what I'm going through. Tim Keller uh, was recently giving an interview and he was asked about suffering and he said, you know, there are basically two responses you can give. One is a logical, philosophical one. It's valid, uh, but it's not necessarily very comforting for the person who's in the middle of suffering. And in a way, it's, the argument that I've been making so far, it goes something like this: because you can't think of a reason why a good God might allow this or that to happen, it doesn't mean there isn't one. But the second one, the the more comforting one, particularly for people who are going through something really difficult right now, is that you know, if you are in the midst of a difficult time, then whilst I may not know why. suffering as you do whilst those around you may not know why you're suffering as you do. What I know for sure is that it isn't because God doesn't love you. And I know that because God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to be God in human form, to suffer, to weep and grieve and be hungry and thirsty and be abandoned and mocked and beaten and left to die on a cross, all because he loves us. You know, Jesus suffered, so he knows your suffering. Dickie Gumbel, uh, the founder of the Alpha Course, has a wonderful phrase that he was sharing in in a recent sermon as I was preparing and listening to something he was sharing. He he talked about this, it's wonderful. The phrase is, it didn't look good at the crucifixion. And that's a habit. a family that they tell each other you know when life's hard or disappointing or confusing they'll say hey it didn't look good at the crucifixion. So can I encourage you to remind yourself you know when things are hard or tough to remind those around you, particularly those that are also believers you know it didn't look good at the crucifixion. And I also took great encouragement from the following hymn or poem from John Newton I, I. Uh, As I was preparing, I was sharing some of my thinking and my ideas with Ruth and and she'd happened that day to be speaking to her mum on the phone who shared this very uh, poem and it just seemed so apt. Uh, I'm going to read it. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way, as drove, as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, our times of our times of fear and struggling and sorrow and doubt, the times that God is using for our good, our eternal good. Okay, God does the work, not you. Now if we ask ourselves the question, you know, what do the Israelites do in this story? You know, I mean, what are they asked to do? What are they expected to do? What is required of them? What we see is that basically they've got one job. They've got to follow the leading of God. God is leading them in, in two ways in Exodus. Firstly, through Moses. And secondly, through the presence, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night that we learned about last week. And they have obeyed God by trusting in the Passover lamb so far. They've obeyed him in marching out of Egypt. And they followed up to this point at the shores of the Red Sea. But the Israelites seem to be, don't they, having a moment of wavering faith. And that's maybe a little bit kind. I mean, to some extent, but they've got no faith. Like they've got one job and they seem to have completely lost sight of it. They, they say don't they, to Moses in verse 11, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? And again in verse 12, they say, It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. They're, they're ready to trade it all in, all that God has done for them at, at this moment, ready to be back in Egypt, back in slavery. And honestly, you know, I have some sympathy with them. You know, along our journey have we not often had similar thoughts, but under a lot less pressure and danger than Israel. Have you know, we've been tempted by sin or the pleasures of the world to, to trade it all in. You know, it could be possessions, could be career, it could be relationships. Any time we give in to temptation, we are in effect, aren't we, trading in our relationship with God for that thing. But Moses, on the other hand, is full of faith. He says in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. You know, the key, I think, is, the key to having Moses' faith is that he looks at God, and not the circumstances around him. He, he knows who God is. He knows his character. And he's been on a journey, Moses, if we remember back, earlier on in exodus you know he wasn't always so faithful but now he seems to have learned who his god is and he, he he only looks at who god is what he knows he's done in the past and therefore what he's confident he can do again so i read that verse again he says fear not stand firm and see the salvation of the lord which he will work for you today Notice how the Israelites bring nothing to their own salvation. Verse 14 goes on to say, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It's the work of God from beginning to end. Previously we learnt how the Israelites were rescued by the Passover lamb, which has died in their place. And all they had to do was have faith and demonstrate their faith by painting the doorframe with its blood. And then God did the leading, By the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night as they marched out of slavery. And again, all they had to do was have faith by following that presence. And now God, working through Moses, parts the Red Sea in two. Verse 12 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. So the Israelites then can walk through on dry ground, with the water piled up on either side. And again, they demonstrate that faith, don't they, by, by walking through the parted waters. See, salvation is God's doing. All we have to do is trust. Again, we're reminded of Jesus, aren't we, who, unlike Moses, did not have a staff. He, he didn't need to pray. He just spoke, and the wind and the waves obeyed him. And Jesus, who went to the cross to die for our sins, who suffered in our place, who rose from the dead, who has done his work and now sits at the right hand of the Father. You contributed nothing to your salvation. You see, it's all God's work. It's all God's grace. It's all God's kindness to you. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, therefore, we can just kick back and relax and sort of just let God do the work. That's not what I'm saying. Remember, the Israelites have to exercise faith in response to God's work of salvation. They have to follow the presence. They have to paint the door frames with the blood. They have to walk through the parted Red Sea. And We, too, have to put our trust in Christ and bring our lives into obedience to him. You see also the Israelites, they are standing at the shores of the Red Sea, and they're looking back at the Passover and their rescue from slavery. I think it's a lot like us looking back at the cross where we were redeemed. You know, we still face danger, just like the Israelites did. The Israelites have been saved from physical slavery, but are in danger of being enslaved again. And we've been rescued from spiritual slavery to sin, but we find ourselves very tempted at times, assaulted, under spiritual attack. We say sin was defeated at the cross and amen it was, but it doesn't always feel like it. The cross is salvation past, but we need help now in the present. So just as God parts the Red Sea, ensuring that Israelites don't fall back into physical slavery, we have the work of the Holy Spirit in us, ensuring we don't fall back into spiritual slavery. God's Spirit is dwelling in us, perfecting us, transforming us, renewing us. It's the work of the Spirit. And in that sense, salvation is an ongoing thing too. We talk about salvation past the cross, but there's salvation now, the Spirit working in our lives. And there is salvation yet to come, of course, as well, uh, when we enter the new creation. The new heavens and the new earth, the city, the new Jerusalem. Jesus says in John ten twenty, John ten twenty nine, My Father, who's given them, that's us. He's talking about us as Christians. To me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Or again, Philippians one, uh, verse six says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So if you're in a battle with sin and temptation right now, which is going to be all of us to a greater or lesser extent in different areas, we need to trust in God, who by his spirit is going to give you the help you need. Trust in him and he will deliver you. Let God fight for you in prayer, in worship, in service of others, in reading scripture, in fasting. Seek more of his spirit. His spirit will do the work Sometimes we need to stop striving ourselves, you know, working it all out ourselves, saying, you know, next time it'll be different. No, it won't. Unless you cry out to God to help you, unless you open yourself up to the work of the Holy Spirit so he can change you and empower you. Okay, finally, there are two ways for God to get the glory. And this final point is... is a sobering one. But I felt really compelled by God to include this as I was preparing. There are two ways for God to get the glory. I believe this is a wake up call for us as Christians and for anyone who's not a Christian and listening to this message. So as Exodus 14 is shown, and indeed as chapter 15 does for that matter, we haven't had time to look at chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the song of Moses. It's really Moses uh, and then all the Israelites joining him in in praising God for what he's done so awesomely, so miraculously, so powerfully at the parting of the Red Sea. What we see in chapter 14 and 15 is that God is glorified by his awesome rescue of the Israelites. In verse 2 of chapter 15, for example, the Israelites sing, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Again in verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. But there is a second way God gets the glory, and it is staring us in the face throughout chapter 14 and 15. Chapter 14, verse 4 says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Again in verse 17, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. Verses 30 31 read, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And then on into chapter 15, in verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In other words, God also gets the glory over his enemies in this case, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, by destroying them. And in this way, God gets the glory in all things and over all things, both those whom he redeems by songs of praise back to him for his wondrous work, for his mercy and his compassion and love, but also over those who oppose him through their judgment. Both end up glorifying God, but in very different ways. Now, God is a perfect judge, and so He will be just in His judgments. We, as humans, with our flaws and weaknesses and compromised desires, are not. God's judgments will always be better than our own. Remember, we know that by this point in the story, the Egyptians are guilty of slavery, oppression, infanticide, genocide. That's not to mention the extraordinary miracles they've seen performed in front of their eyes by Aaron and Moses. We also know that God does not take satisfaction in the death of anyone. Ezekiel 33.11 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Notice how not only does God not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that instead he's hoping that the threat of such a thing will cause people to repent and turn back to him. And we know, don't we, from Scripture that whenever they do that, God is always gracious and forgiving and merciful. And then Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 8-9 in the New Testament, in response to those questioning when God's final judgement is going to come, reads, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's desire is for all to turn back to him, to say sorry for not living as they should have done, to instead trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and start aligning their life under the rule of God but in the end the chance to respond for all of us runs out as it did for the Egyptians at the Red Sea and as it will for us uh, when we die or when Christ returns. So my question is this, how do you want to glorify God? In heaven? or in hell, you need to know this, that God has rescued you, he's redeemed you, he loves you, and he's demonstrated that by sending his son to die on a cross, and on that cross Jesus took all the righteous anger God has against sin, so that it might be paid for in full. All you have to do is to access that rescue by faith, remember it's all God's work, we have to simply trust in it and follow it. And then for those of us who are Christians, it's a reminder that the urgency of the gospel is real. That our friends and family and colleagues who don't know Christ stand under God's judgment. But that by believing in the gospel, they will be saved. So often we can be afraid, can't we, to have those conversations about God because it's awkward or we fear the social exclusion, the ridicule maybe. And sometimes those fears are not without foundation. But the importance of the gospel in light of the judgments of God should dwarf any of those things that might hold us back. And we know that we are powerless to make anyone respond to the gospel. That's God's work, remember, and God's business. But we are responsible for carrying the message through which God can so powerfully work. Romans 10 verse 14 reads, How then will they? And the they is referring to those who are not Christians. So how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know, I know I certainly need more of the Holy Spirit for compassion and boldness and love, to share the gospel with those around me, I wonder if the same is true for you. There's just too much at stake.